Welcome, everybody, back to Junior Resource Investing here. I'm your host, Matthew. Before we get going, as always, a disclaimer, right, that you can check the full disclaimer in the YouTube notes below. But as always, please understand that this is not financial advice. Nothing that you hear today will be construed as, can be construed as, not, as pardon me, financial advice. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am inter- I'm excited, though. This is a, an exciting interview for me. We have with us today Mark Jarvis, who is CEO of Giga Metals. Giga Metals is a nickel developer working on advancing its turn-again nickel-cobalt project to production in BC's Golden Triangle, having signed a very exciting JV with Mitsubishi last fall, and have a PFS expected in just a few short months. They trade on the TSXV under the ticker GIGA, and on the OTCQX under the ticker HNCKF, and also in Frankfurt under BRR2. Mark, thank you for joining me today. Hope your day is going well. Well, thanks, Matt. It's great. Yeah, great to be here. Nope, perfect. I appreciate you taking your time. So same question as always, I start out with, you know, you've got 30 seconds in an elevator. What's your elevator pitch for potential investors for gigametals? Well, in measured and indicated, we've got uh, 7 billion pounds of nickel uh, plus cobalt. It's an 18 to 1 ratio um, in an open pitable configuration or a life of mine. A strip ratio is 0.2 to 1. Um, and it is a large, low-grade deposit. It's been around for a while. I've been working on this since 2004. Uh, it will never be the low-cost producer of the world, but it's a, it, it's a project with marginal economics at the low end of the nickel price range. But at current prices, the economics start to get quite robust. And this is one of the projects that is needed for the battery supply chain for North America, uh, you know, and for Europe. So um, I am confident that this mine is going to get built this market cycle. And we're seeing significant interest from strategic investors. You mentioned Mitsubishi. We've, you know, we've got one minority interest partner in the joint venture so far. We're looking for another one. And, um, you know, the interest is there from, car makers, battery makers, but also from uh, mining companies. There is, I, you know, this whole uh, electric vehicle phenomenon has just rekindled the nickel market. Mm. And it's because nickel holds electrons very well, the energy density is very high. And so if you want range in your electric vehicle, you need more nickel in your cathode. And it's just that simple. There's really nothing that can replace nickel if you want range. Hmm. And you're, you've nailed it. You've nailed my understanding of your company as well, right? Where you are heavily leveraged the price of nickel. So if you are a nickel bull or, or you know, if you're, if you're bullish on, on resources, this is the kind of company that you want, right? That, that, that deep, that dovetailing between your own story and nickel story, I think is an important part of this, right? So what you, you, I think you touched on something that I want to circle back to though, because I think, you know, for, for people that are maybe new to your story and doing their first kind of initial due diligence, I think they would appreciate maybe just kind of an explanation of this. You have been CEO, I think since 2004 of Giga or its predecessors, right? And, and, and the company having undergone a few name changes has owned, correct me if I'm wrong, this, uh, the turn again project since 1996, is that a, so do you mind just explaining, you know, what, what it, you've been with this company for quite some time. This company's had this project for quite some time. Do you mind just explaining or discussing the name changes and the period of dormancy that you folks went through? Okay. Well, in 2004, I was retired. Um, <laughs> I've had, you know, a very nice uh, score from, from natural gas uh, play in Wyoming called ultra petroleum. And, uh, you know, I had retired. Um, I was bullish on base metals and I was, you know, I'm personally a punter. Like I, you know, I invest in blue chip stocks, but I also invest in juniors, uh, quite extensively. And, um, you know, I was looking around at various base metal stocks at the time and, uh, a broker I knew, a guy named Elf Stewart showed this to me. Uh, the uh, company was halted or suspended rather. Um, and under investigation for 43101 violations, the management uh, was not in good odor. And I said, Elf, 
why would I put a dollar into this company? And he says, no, 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 you're not going to invest in it. You should take it over. And I went, oh, <laughs> okay. And so I uh, ended up negotiating with the previous management to leave and uh, bought a bought a hefty private placement and then started uh, raising money and drilling. And um, I could see a very, very large deposit here. Um, you know, they did, there was no resource at the time, but you could see drill holes that were like two kilometers apart that were kind of the same as each other. Just a big, you know, a fairly homogenous blob of ultramafic with uh, nickel, uh, both both in olivine, which is not recoverable, but also in sulfides, which are recoverable. And in fact, in sulfides, it's, it's 99% of the nickel and the cobalt are contained in pentlandite. So it's really one sulfide mineral, which makes the processing so easy, so simple. Anyways, I saw that. Um, we started raising money and drilling and trying to figure this thing out. Um, and we had a pretty nice run until the crash of 2008. And after that, um, the nickel price plummeted. Uh, that was the beginning of nickel pig iron. The, you know, the, the, the Chinese started uh, resurrecting this old technology where you just dig up saprolite and throw it in furnaces mm. and end up with a mixture of iron and nickel, which is perfectly suitable for the stainless market. And that basically killed the nickel market for about a decade. Mm. So uh, we went fairly dormant. I mean, we still kept kept some activity up until about 2011. There was a dead cat bounce in the nickel boats in, in 2011. And after that, it was just very, very dreary for a while till 2017, 2018, when things started picking up again because of electric vehicles. Mm. So, um, you know, nickel pig iron um, is very suitable for stainless. Stainless steel is still 65 to 70% of the total use of nickel. So there you go. Um, but it's not easily uh, um, convertible to class one nickel. Or put it this way, it's expensive. It's, mm -hmm. it's extremely energy intensive. It's extremely environmentally unfriendly. Um, so nickel in a form that you know, such as sulfides, it goes directly to the battery, uh, you know, to the cathode quite easily uh, is what's to be preferred at this point in the market if you're aiming to supply a cathode material. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so so I basically shut down and mothballed the project for a few years. I had to let my whole technical team go. Mm -hmm. I didn't collect a salary for a number of years. You know, we barely hung on, you know, rent, phone you know, listing fees, you know, mm -hmm. but, but we kept it alive. We kept the listing, we kept the asset. And then when there started to be interest in nickel again in 2017, you know, we were there, we were still there. So there's a lesson here. This is a cyclical business. Now, some of the name changes, uh, we changed the name to Hard Creek Nickel. Uh, once I took control because I wanted to leave the old name behind, I won't even mention it. Um, and then when we started to get some interest from uh, uh, some, some people with money in 2017, 2018, uh, they, they wanted a name change. And so I follow the golden rule. Those who have the gold make the rule. And, and uh, you know, they wanted to put some money in, but they wanted a name change. So we ended up with the name, you know, Giga Metals. They wanted to reflect that we're, you know, aiming directly at the cathode market, which we are. So that's the reason for that name change. Um, we still have a hundred percent. Well, we still don't, we still have a subsidiary called Hard Creek Nickel, which contains the Turnigan project and all the assets and data of the Turnigan project. Mitsubishi now owns 15% of Hard Creek Nickel and we own 85% of the subsidiary. And, and, and that's how Mitsubishi, once again, the golden rule, Mitsubishi wanted it structured that way. So we structured it that way. 
Perfect. No, and that, thank you. It's just those things where simple explanations, if you don't know them, can be a little daunting to, to new people new to the story, right? So, sure. so you reference, yeah, you know, 15% ownership by Mitsubishi, obviously. I mean, that's a, that's a huge, uh, kind of boon or a huge uh, check mark in terms of affirming your storyline. But can you, can you maybe run through who else do you have? Insiders, institution, retail? How does your share structure break down? Oh, our, our, our shares are widely owned. I'm the largest shareholder with about 5%. Um, I just have kept putting money in over the years. Um, and my average price, I worked it out a couple of years ago. It was around 45 cents a share is, is, is my average price because, you know, the stock has gone through consolidations, a couple of them. Um, and so my uh, early purchases are way out of the money, but I kept buying at the lower prices so that helped to pull the average price down a little. Uh, so, so, so I'm in at around 45 cents. Um, and, you know, Mitsubishi doesn't own any stock. They own 15% of the joint venture company. And uh, the strategics that I'm talking to, that's the deal that's on offer. Our stock, in our view, is way too cheap and doesn't reflect the value of the asset. And, you know, I keep puzzling why that is. It's just the market in general. But it's just also, I don't know why, but but this story is a bit of a sleeper and it's a bit under the radar. And so, but I know what happens. Like, I've, I, you know, this is not my first rodeo. And, um, you know, I remember with uh, Ultra Petroleum, we had quite a large, you know, uh, widely held stock position. It was not tight. Once things got interesting, then you've got something that can trade volume and you can get institutional involvement because you can get to where you trade millions of shares a day. Mm. If you've got a, you know, like a lot of uh, retail people think, you know, if you've got a really tight market or, 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 or tight capitalization, that's a good thing. And you can get volatility out of that, but it's hard to get volume out of that. So, mm. you know, if you're trading five or 10,000 shares at a time, great, go for the tight stuff. But if you want size, um, in my experience, you know, you want a big sloppy market cap, <laughs> or big sloppy market structure. And we definitely have that. And that sort of uh, leads to a not very exciting market when things are quiet. But I can tell you, it's my belief at some point, something's going to trigger and this is going to get exciting and it's going to start to trade volume. It's going to start to attract that institutional interest. I don't know when and I don't know why, but I know that the fundamentals are here where something's going to happen out of the blue one day. Mm -hmm. I remember, what, two years ago, there was that Reuters story that we were in talks with Tesla. I mean, the stock started trading 20 million shares a day. Mm. It was crazy. Mm. Um, and, you know, the stock ran to 240 a share or so. And then, of course, we were, you know, talking to Tesla but at the time. But there was nothing, you know, it was early stage discussions. But the market just just went crazy over that, that Reuters news story. Mm. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we were not a takeover. You know, Tesla's got, you know, their history in, 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 in the spaces. And in terms of the juniors, they'll sprinkle fairy dust around, but they don't um, actually put up money. And these projects need money. Yeah. Yeah. High CapEx, nickel. Yeah. Expensive long-term projects, right? Well, you know, and that's the, that's the interesting part is that, you know, we've got a project that in our PEA, it's a two-stage development. First stage is 1.4 billion U.S. Mm -hmm. And then second stage to double production is another 500 million U.S. So a total of 1.9 billion. And, you know, there's definitely inflation happening in the last couple of years. So, you know, the number is going to be higher than that. Um, but, you know, we're sitting with a market cap somewhere under 30 million Canadians. So how does a tiny company like ours get a project like this built, it seems very unlikely. Um, well, the answer is you need partners and you need partners with depth 
with financial depth. And so we've focused on that. We focused on uh, offering uh, shares in the project itself rather than shares in our company to strategic investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, fair enough. And I mean, you, you discussed it yourself there. I mean, I think that, that, that well, your story first came across my desk or came to my attention after the, with the Mitsubishi JV. And I thought, well, here we go, right? This is a huge, one of those big defining moments. And, you know, and it's just, just not the market, right? It's just a, it's a merciless market right now where, I mean, good news just, you know, it withers on the vine or it's a liquidity event, right? So, I mean, it's, it's for me, I guess, as a, as a private investor, I mean, it's easy to be picking up deals that I think are pennies on the dollar in terms of the potential. Like you say, I mean, I think, you know, I was just doing some napkin math before we met, before we meet, met here and uh, it was a $29 billion of recoverable nickel you have, right? And I mean, you're sitting at a $30 million market cap or whatever it is today. And, uh, and you've got Mitsubishi in your back pocket. So, I mean, it seems, seems so, uh, there's so much potential here, but just the market's just not the market to be, it's just not the right market for it quite yet, right? You know, and in, in, in my experience is not very often in the stock market that something is really obvious. Hmm. Usually you're kind of guessing, you're not sure. But once in a while you see something, you go, that's obvious. Now, the timing may not be obvious. Yeah. In fact, the timing is never obvious. Yeah. But, you know, if you see something that's undervalued, and I'm not talking about, you know, just us, although we're an example of that. If you see something that you believe is undervalued and the underlying macro is working your way, you just buy it and tuck it away and maybe Mm -hmm. it goes up a little, maybe it goes down a little. You don't know which direction the next little move is. Mm -hmm. Know which direction the next big move is. Mm -hmm. And that's what matters. And and when you're playing with, uh, you know, small stocks, you you know, if you're taking that risk in, in micro caps, you're looking, you're not looking for 20% returns. You're looking for five times your money, 10 times your money or more. Mm-hmm. And you're willing to take the risk to expose yourself to that kind of upside. That's, mm-hmm. that's really what the micro cap game is all about. And that's what the junior mining uh, business has always been about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the wrong sector to be trying to, to shave off 10% gains, right? Yeah. You're absolutely correct. So, I mean, let's talk about Mitsubishi. I mean, this is one of those things where it is. I mean, it was such a defining moment for me when I came across this story. $8 million for 15%. Uh, what, do you just want to chat briefly about, you know, what, how that partnership come about? Who, who courted who? I mean, I'm sure that Mitsubishi looked at dozens of projects, right? And so, of course, I mean, as a, as a, as an investor, knowing that Mitsubishi picked you is a big thing for me, right? I mean, obviously they have due diligence that exceeds my own abilities, right? So can you just kind of just briefly just run through how that came about? Well, uh, our president um, is a fellow named Martin Vider, and he had a 31-year career at uh, Sherritt International, which is a Canadian company that's got a nickel and cobalt mine in Cuba. So you never see Sherritt executives in the U.S. They're not allowed to land there. Um, but, but, but he worked there for 31 years. He's an engineer. He ran maintenance on a mine, uh, on, on, you know, on their mine. Uh, you know, he worked at their, they, they've got a refinery in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. Um, and, uh, but he also worked in marketing. So he sold nickel and cobalt products to end users. And, and again, nickel isn't like copper. It's a much more complex market. It's not just metal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just powders. It's various chemical forms of nickel for various end uses. Um, and so you've got all these different end users that want different nickel products. And, and Martin understands that market very well, but he also knows all the end users. So we basically, Martin got interested in this. I mean, he could have done anything after Sherrod, uh, but this is the project that he chose as, as, as the one that he thinks as mayor, because he looked at our concentrate and he said, I can sell this concentrate. Mm-hmm. And, and not only can, can I sell this concentrate, it's a premium product, but in terms of further downstream processing, this is simple. We could put this through a pressure oxidation circuit. We could take it to sulfate. We could take it to MHP. We could take it to briquettes, metal, and, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a product that is amenable to further, uh, processing. Anyways. He got involved for that reason, and and I sat down with Martin. I said, "Look, our you know 
our market cap is too low. I don't want to be selling stock unless I have to. I will sell stock if I have to, because I'm pragmatic enough to want to stay, you know, alive and keep the project going forward. But my preferred route is to sell pieces of the project rather than pieces of our company. And, you know, Martin had all these contacts and he had excellent contacts in Japan. And so we made several trips to Japan talking to all sorts of different Japanese companies. Uh, you know, we talked to other companies as well. And Mitsubishi, uh, you know, we started off talking to their traders. Uh, they then flipped us over to the investment arm. I mean, it's such a giant company and figuring out your way through that maze is, is not easy, but Martin, Martin understands the maze. And then, you know, and then they started doing real detailed due diligence, probably eight months before we signed the deal. Like we'd been talking to them off, you know, off and on for, couple of years before they suddenly got serious mm. and 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 they formed a battery metal division within the raw materials division the battery metals division is focused on nickel and lithium mm. and um my understanding is that they looked at 26 different projects worldwide um and then they settled on us so they like the jurisdiction canada jurors you know canada's not a competitive jurisdiction compared to, say, Indonesia, where you can get a permit very quickly. Canada, you've got to go through a very detailed environmental assessment. And in fact, uh, it takes too long. I mean, you know, Australia does a good job with environmental assessments, but they do it a lot quicker than Canada. Mm. Um, and so, you know, they're working on that. Uh, you know, the federal government uh, has committed to streamlining of that process for critical minerals. And we'll see if that's just talk or if that's real, but they're at least talking the right way. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, lessening the process. What that means is turning it around faster. So we do our work, you know, we pass the work on to the regulators and they can take their sweet time to, to turn it around sometimes. Well, now they're saying, well, okay, we won't take this. We will turn things around in a reasonable amount of time. Anyways, that's why Indonesia is getting stuff built and Canada so far hasn't, is that it's the whole environmental assessment process is pretty almost non-existent in Asia, whereas in Canada it's quite rigorous. However, Mitsubishi looks at the flip side of that. They, they, they play the long game and, it, you know, so yeah, there's a process, but there's a process you can go through and you can get mines built in Canada. We do it all the time. Um, once the mine is built, the buyers of the products can be happy that their materials have been ethically sourced, that you're not destroying the environment to get these products. And that's in sharp contrast to Indonesia. And I think that that, no, pardon me, don't mean to interrupt you. I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think right now that sort of ethical production is, is, is an option, I guess, if you want to say it's, it's, it's not a necessity, but yeah, you know, like you, I mean, this is, you have a 37 year mine life, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you know, look at where the market's headed that the, these, as you say, ethically sourced, environmentally friendly, I mean, Indonesia, I mean, the, the environmental deg degradation and destruction that occurs because of their mining is, is massive, right? Versus, as you say, Canada. You can have a you can you can be you can rest assured that there's a rigorous level of EIA that, involvement that uh, you know what you're getting and you know it's going to be be safe to the safe or safe as safe as it can be rather I suppose right to to the environment right and I think that's going to become mandatory and necessary you know in short order here right so I mean again you know I think that you know, Giga this is why I find you compelling is that you are there are so many tailwinds and you're pointed to the future in such a meaningful way right yeah. Yeah, like 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 all of the macro elements are working our way. Uh, mm -hmm. All of the ESG elements are working our way, and also, um, you know, carbon sequestration is another example of that. I mean, mm -hmm. we've got a realistic shot, data driven. We've got lots of data. We've been we've been doing the work. We're not just talking. Um, that 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 we could get to uh, zero carbon 
uh, scope one and two to produce a concentrate. That's, that's a realistic target. Um, and we continue to fund work at the University of British Columbia led by Dr. Greg Dipple, um, who has been studying CO2 sequestration in silicate tailings piles for about 20 years. Uh, you know, including at Mount Keith in Australia, big open pit nickel mine in Australia. Um, and including diabic mines in the Northwest Territories. Diamond mines also have silicate host rock. Kimberlite is a silicate. Um, and also mines in Africa. So, so hot weather, cold weather, you know, he's been studying, uh, you know, CO2 uptake in, uh, in the tailings piles and he's developed a methodology to measure it. So one of the things that we're working on is to get uh, Dr. Dipple's uh, methodology certified so that if you can measure something, well, then you can claim the credit. And so that's, that's, that's an ongoing project. But, you know, that's also important to Mitsubishi. So, you know, economics matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but to companies like Mitsubishi, and I think to companies you know, like the car companies that are trying to sell in North America and in Europe. Um, the carbon footprint is going to matter as well. So, Well, I mean, carbon footprints, there is a dollar value assigned to them. Yes, it's a murky and complicated and, and you know, perhaps inexact science, but nevertheless, there is, a, there is an economic detrimental you know, negative or positive value economically. So, I mean, it, it, it isn't, you know, it's a natural evolution of the market that they will, that, people will begin to try to monetize or understand the monetary impact of those things. So again, I mean, this just tailwinds, yeah. tailwinds everywhere bound for you guys. So I guess maybe one last question here on Mitsubishi, what kind of partner are they? I mean, are they active? Are they passive? You know, is this something that you know, ongoing conversations and then maybe as a, a follow up is that, I mean, what, what is their expectations for, for your project for turn again? I mean, are they pushing for accelerated timeline? Are they pushing for you to make a construction decision sooner rather than later? I mean, where, 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 what's their headspace? Okay. Well, first of all, they're a wonderful partner. Um, they're nice people, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I would say this in general about, you know, the Japanese, um, you know, in general, <laughs> they're respectful. They're nice. They like to have fun. They like to go out for dinner and, you know, have good wine and good sake. Um, but they are not uh, passive. They, they're very hands-on. We are the operator. But we want our minority partner to be happy with mm -hmm. what's going on. And we have regular meetings. We had a meeting uh, last night, our time. It was morning the next day in Tokyo. Um, some of our meetings last for three hours. And um, so very, very, very detail-oriented. Um, and they're very interested in this PFS. They have internal expertise. So, so just to step back a little, Mitsubishi is a participant in 10 or 11 operating mines worldwide. And they get involved at the project level and help to get the thing built. They've got the financial capacity to build mines. They've got banks. They've got one bank in particular that's part of their group that, that, that finances mine construction. Um, they don't want to operate. They want their share of the production. And if they can get more than that through some sort of offtake or marketing agreement, they'll take that too. At this point, they've got 15%. They own 15%, so they're entitled to 15% of the output of the mine when it eventually gets built. Um, but they've, so, so, so because they're very familiar, they're not miners primarily, but they're very familiar with the mining business through these different, um, you know, minority interests in mines all over the world. And so they've got, uh, the in-house technical capability to evaluate. They also, uh, in our case, hired an external engineering firm to help them evaluate a very, I won't mention names, but a very, very conservative uh, firm. And so I recall that we're, you know, and, and then we've got, you know, we've got our data room is extremely well organized. And so 
you can look at the summary material. It's basically a PEA. Each section of it is a summary. And then you can go to the next le level behind that with the details, with the reports that are behind the summary. And then you can go behind those reports to the raw data you know, in those reports. So it's, it's a very well-organized um, uh, electronic data room. And they've been over that and over that, and they've had their, uh, you know, their their hired engineering company do the same thing. Um, and then, you know, once a month or so, we'll have, you know, a PFS update meeting where we go through everything that's going on with the PFS, what's going well, what's not going well, you know, et cetera, and uh, all the details. And they will ask extensive questions, and their consultants will also ask extensive questions. And make suggestions. Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? So it's a very collaborative process, very hands-on. They don't just write a check and walk away and say, you take care of it. Not like that at all. Um, and it's good. It's very constructive. It's a very constructive process. Um, you know, I'm not used to big companies. I've been a small company guy my entire career, but it's just such an intelligent group of individuals. Within this giant company, the people that I'm dealing with are great. So, anyways, it's a good partnership. They're very interested in getting another partner involved. You know, let's sell another, say, 20% of the project to someone. Uh, and we're looking to do that for uh, enough money to get us all the way to the finish line in terms of a construction decision. Uh, so, to get us through the environmental assessment. Uh, and to get us through the full feasibility and all the field work that's required to provide the data to back up a full feasibility report. I know that this question, it's a natural follow-up, but I know it's also kind of the how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of question. But, I mean, construction decision, I mean, when do you think, you know, when do you think in terms of timeline, what's the expectation there? Do you think you'll make it to an FS or do you think you'll find a construction decision prior to that? Oh, oh, I think we'll have an FS prior to a construction decision. We will also have, I mean, you can't make a construction decision without uh, permits. Mm. So you've got to get through the EA and you've got to get through the permitting process. Um, and then there's other, there's other things in play as well. Um, and, and, and I can tell you it's very helpful having Mitsubishi as a partner for, for this stuff. So the Canadian government uh, has has created an infrastructure fund, a billion and a half dollars, and um, it's to develop infrastructure in support of developing critical minerals mines. And so we're talking to uh, the federal government, we're talking to the provincial government, we're talking to our local First Nations about extending the power line up to Dee's Lake. Uh, that would take about 150 billion US off of our, uh, off of our CapEx and provide a meaningful boost to the economics of this project. It would also send a message that, um, to the international community that, yeah, Canada is serious about this. We really do want to develop these critical minerals projects. And we'll send a message to the U.S. as well that's, that's, that's looking for us to do this to help supply uh, their electrification. Um, so, you know, that's a good, that's a good project for some of that infrastructure money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm thinking that. You know, don't let them spend all that money in Ontario and Quebec. Find some room for the West too, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know where the votes are. Yeah. But, but there are votes out here as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And and projects that need financing and projects that need that support to make it happen, right? So Yeah. I mean we we are semi remote and and uh, infrastructure is a is a is a challenge for us. Mm. And that would that would really really help mm. um, get this project built at almost any nickel price if you had that piece in place. So, and 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 speaking of nickel price, I mean, you know, you know, we get back to this concept of a 
truly huge um, <clears throat> project that's this marginal at the low end of nickel prices. Um, if you look at what happens to the depreciated net present value as the nickel price moves up, it's this balloon effect. Mm -hmm. Start off at, at zero, like like look at our PEA, our PV eight. So at you know, depreciated net present value at an eight percent discount rate is about zero at around eight dollars a pound nickel. Um, you know, I mean, where it's been trading lately. Our PV8 is getting close to two billion US. Mm -hmm. I mean, the leverage. And so, mm -hmm. we're talking about this from an investment perspective. You know, uh, here's something you can buy for a market cap of less than thirty million Canadian, and you've got exposure to that kind of leverage. And you know, uh, you know, I don't know what price this eventually goes to, but there's a lot. A lot of upside, mm -hmm. and and it does depend on the nickel price. So, you know, it's not a it's not a conservative bet, but it is a legitimately highly highly leveraged bet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and 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 that's what attracted me to the project in the first place. Finally, or you know, frankly, ultra petroleum was similar. It was we were the first. Company was now. This is now you know a four-letter word, but we were we were the first company. It was a technological advance where we uh, did multi-stage fracks in a tight gas formation in Wyoming, mm. and we knew that this giant resource was there. But it was how do you make it economic? Mm. And this multi-stage fracking. We were making really good wells, and we knew we had about a thousand locations. So, so we knew the size of the prize. Um, that was kind of marginal economics, even with the fracking, when gas was at around two dollars a thousand. The wells would take about three years to pay out, uh, which is you want about one or two years with a, mm. a gas well, typically. Um, but then, you know, and and our stock uh, was at about forty cents when I joined the board. We went as high as almost ten dollars a share. We went back under a dollar a share. Um, raised a lot of money on the way. Proved the concept. You know, we were able to access debt markets to continue development. But but then, when gas in the early two thousands went over ten dollars a thousand. And in fact, I think it peaked at around sixteen dollars a thousand. That stock went to a hundred fifty dollars a share. I mm. mean, you know, there was a there was a lot of people in Edmonton. There was a broker in Edmonton that got got very excited about the story. A guy named Dave Pescott, and there was a lot of his clients ended up buying houses out of out of what happened with Ultra Petroleum. So. You know, that was my lesson. If you've got something that you know is huge, you know it's there, and you know that at the low end of the commodity price, the economics are marginal, that's where you find that kind of leverage where commodity moves the right way. Uh, the All the metrics in terms of value just explode. So mm -hmm. that's what this is. And that you, I mean, again, it's it's a well articulated comment, right? It's it's almost for me, it's it's a very simple kind of if then comment. If you are bullish nickel, then Giga is a very obvious buy because you know if you think the prices are going to be sustained at ten or eleven or twelve or thirteen or fourteen dollars a pound or whatever US, then it makes Giga an amazing purchase. If you are not bullish nickel, then don't buy Giga, right? And so it's it's a it's a very it's a very natural. If you are you know in this sector and you are, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this interview. Guess you probably are bullish that this is a yeah very very compelling sort of uh, economic story. Um, the numbers, if I may, just I'll, just I'll run through them quickly here. You know, correct me where I'm wrong, but just going from your 2021 uh, PEA, uh, 1.9 billion to build, 2 billion to operate. Uh, you know, 1.2 million tons of recoverable nickel, right? So that's about 40 billion in situ, right? Uh, great strip strip ratio, as you said. 
low grade, 0.22%. But again, I mean, I think nickel is going to happen. Nickel is going to do what copper is currently doing, where it's proving that those huge low grade deposits are economic and have to be economic for us to hit our, our goals, right? Uh, just, IRR right now at current prices is about 11%, which is in line with other large projects, large CapEx projects. So I guess, you know, maybe just uh, the question that, you know, rather than just kind of rattling off these numbers for you, maybe the question we have, and you touched on this in terms of the, the power line being built, saving on CapEx, I mean, any development story, finding ways to improve your economics, especially in light of inflationary pricing, is huge, right? To maintain or improve your, your, your NPV, as you say. So you talk about $150 billion potentially being saved from the power line that you reference. I mean, what, what other, what other avenues are there potentially for Giga to, you know, make, make improvements within their pre-existing project? You know, um, I, I can't speak in detail about it, but we've done some trade-off studies in the PFS and until that information is released, I can't talk about it. Um, mm. Uh, we have found improvements uh, and significant improvements. Um, uh, so, you know, like like you're always doing trade-off studies to see, well, what if we try this? What if we try that? What does that mm-hmm. look like? And you tinker, like basically you're building a model. This mm-hmm. and you're tinkering with the different parts of the model and, and seeing how you can improve the way it runs. Essentially, you know, I get back to something we talked about very early on. One of the main strengths of this project, and one of the reasons that Mitsubishi got involved, <laughs> is its sheer simplicity. Um, you know, 99% of the nickel and cobalt are in pentlandite, and both the nickel and the cobalt are in the pentlandite. Um, the pyrotite we've got is very low nickel, so we don't have to recover two minerals. We reject the pyrotite and, and, and float the pentlandite. You know how simple that is? Like, like it's just, it's just, you know, we're not dealing with different species of sulfides that we have to recover and that have different flotation characteristics. Mm-hmm. We're not dealing with the where you're right, which you have to recover with magnetic separation and which is not really a, a part of a sulfide concentrate if you're wanting to send this, uh, you know, for further processing to the battery. You know, unless you're going to put it actually in, in, in a pressure oxidation circuit, which can be done, it's more complicated. You know, if you're going to do pressure oxidation downstream, uh, it helps to have something predictable coming at the refinery. So we can make this 18% con plus or minus very little day in and day out. And we know what our recoveries are. We're, you know, Part of the work we're doing is is what's called geometallurgy. So we're seeing different parts of the deposit. You know, what does the recovery look like uh, in different parts of the deposit? Different sulfur grades, different nickel grades, and so forth. Um, and uh, if you've got the same thing coming at your refinery every day, that's nice and easy to offer. Sure. And if you've got roughly the same kind of ore coming at your Flotation circuit every day, nice and easy to operate. Now, you can operate mines with, you know, with variation in your feedstock. It's just a way more complicated. It's more problematic. Mm-hmm. And so, so our circuit is both shorter than, uh, you know, any of the competing projects. Crush it, grind it, float it. No magnetic separation. Uh, also, no desliming circuits because we don't have the kind of alteration minerals that lead to sliming. Um, so, so it's a shorter circuit and it's a more reliable circuit, and that's part of why we got uh, the interest of Mitsubishi. Um, so, what I'm getting at is this, <clears throat> this whole model that I'm talking about, um, where you just really take off uh, in value when the nickel price takes off. The whole model is very simple and reliable. It, it's, it's, it's not complicated. It's, you know, I will venture to say this is the lowest risk. Technically, it's the lowest risk undeveloped large nickel project on the planet. Hmm. And that low risk is worth something. Hmm. 
Absolutely, and, and 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 proof is in the pudding. You've got Mitsubishi tagging along right now. So yeah, it's a point well made. Um, just a couple of quick questions here. I think we're kind of circling around to the end of the conversation. Um, you, you referenced, I mean, yeah, there's that $1.5 billion package that the feds are, are offering. I mean, do you anticipate after the PFS that there will be federal funding available to, to Giga, or you know, how much are you relying on or hoping to get federal support in that fashion? Well, we're not relying on anything. Hmm. We're just simply talking to people and saying, look, we got a project here, um, and this is where Mitsubishi helps. Mitsubishi is our partner. <laughs> you know, we're not just some little junior yeah. know, waving their arms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got a serious partner, and 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 for both the provincial and the federal government are taking us seriously. We're having serious conversations with them. Um, also, the First Nations are starting to take us a little more seriously now. Um, you know, they they tend to devote their time and effort. We're, we're, we're dealing with the Taltan and the Casca, and they tend to spend their capacity, their, their, their time uh, on projects that, that they think are going to get built, just like anyone else. They don't want to waste a lot of time uh, dealing with projects that they think are kind of out there. Mm-hmm. So, so we're getting that kind of uh, seriousness now. Um, you know, thanks to partnering with, with with Mitsubishi, I you know I think I think we're making a really good case that this power line should be built. Um, I think our chances are good, and we're not counting on anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then, I guess the question is what? So I guess actually, you know what? Maybe ask a separate question. I mean, do you have what, where where are you at with the ESG with your local First Nations? I mean, is there do you have collaboration agreements signed with them, or how formal is the support that you have from them? Uh, with the Taltan, we've got a communications agreement. And um, with the Casca, it's been more ad hoc recently. We are talking to the Casca. We, you know, 10, 12 years ago, we had a formal agreement with the Casca. But then when the nickel price turned down and I put the project on mothballs for a few years, um, that kind of expired. Um and so we're we're reengaging with the Casca. So just to be perfectly clear, both of them are mining friendly. Both of them want economic development in their territories. Uh, the Taltan uh, territory controls the access to our project, and the Casca territory is downstream. The Turnigan River flows north to the Arctic. That's through Casca territory. So the Casca are, you know, their main concern is going to be any uh, potential impacts on, on that river. Um, so, you know, they're both, in, you know, in our view, completely uh, legitimate players. I mean, it's, it's they both claim the Turnigan project as being within their territory. So it's an overlap. Um, and from the developer's point of view, uh, we believe both of them. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and frankly, they used to be uh, more at odds with each other, but, but they're now more cooperative with each other. So uh, I think they both recognize that our project is in a joint uh, territory. And so, um, you know, we'll see how it goes. So far, uh, so far, the relations are good. You can never guarantee anything, mm-hmm. uh, but as long as you know, I think as long as we don't do anything like stupid, um, the relations will continue to be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a continuous, ongoing, you know, evergreen sort of conversation and relationship you have to build with them, right? And I mean, I think just like anybody else, if you approach that relationship with good faith, you get good faith in response, typically or generally, right? So, no, I think that yeah, it's critical. Obviously, in Canada, we talk about EIA and and then ESG is critical in Canada for those reasons. So those. Yeah, those relationships are important, right? Absolutely. Um, maybe we're, we're kind of down to last just a couple of questions here. Uh, I guess maybe, you know, when, when might we expect the PFS? Uh, well, I'm currently looking at uh, June. June? Yeah. So yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, the, only thing, the only thing certain in, in mining is uncertainty when it comes to dates. So, well, I won't hold you to that, but June, yeah. June is, a, is what you're taking. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, our engineer was looking at May until... Uh, yesterday. 
And then he said, yeah, there's been enough little little things here and there that I'm now expecting, Jim. Yeah. No, it's a gargantuan project, right? So, Yeah. And I said, yeah, well, <clears throat> I've been thinking June all along. So. <laughs> Glad to, glad to catch up, eh? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, we'll have to, I'll have to get you back on once you get the PFS out and we can kind of chew on that stuff too. Um, honestly, you know, Mark, maybe let's leave it at this. I mean, parting thoughts or final words, is there anything that I neglected to cover that you would like to chat about here before we say goodbye? Well, you know, I mean, we're not, neither of us are in the business of giving investment advice, <laughs> but uh, I just, I just think, again, I get back to, this is so freaking obvious. Like, you know, I don't know the timing. I don't know when it happens, but I've seen it before that something will sit there and sit there and sit there and drift up a little and drift down a little. And then something will happen and it takes off. And I don't know when that is. And I don't know what the impetus will be. Maybe when we get our next partner involved, you know, that could be a possible trigger. Uh, maybe when the PFS comes out and if the numbers look, as good as I hope they're going to look, um, that could be a trigger. Uh, and who knows? Who knows what the trigger is? It's it's nothing is harder to predict mm-hmm. the future. So. <laughs> no, well said. It is exciting, and it's one of those things where you know just patience is the most important ingredient that sometimes people neglect to have. Right. And especially in this sector, as you say, you can, you can be right, but if it's the, if the timing's wrong, you're not right. Right. So yeah, just a certain degree of patience and good things will come. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. I guess. Yeah. Thank you. It was a, an enlightening conversation. I enjoyed it. And yeah, thanks to our listeners. If you've tuned in, if you, if, if Mark has kind of piqued your interest, then head over to gigametals.com, G I G A metals.com. It's a great website. Lots of good information. As for me, as always, junior resource investing, Spotify, YouTube, and elsewhere. Mark, thank you for your time. I appreciate the conversation. Well, it was a pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Perfect. Right. Take care. Thank you very much. <laughs>